We're continuing our series called Ancient Grace, and the title of this message is, If I Perish, I Perish. The story of Esther is a literary gem. Even the most ardent critics of our faith would agree with that. But how does that book rate as part of God's Word? Before we look at the book, I want you to ask yourself a question. If the Bible is the Word of God, why is there a book in the Bible that never mentions God, not even once. Not only that, Esther is one of only two books from the Old Testament that are not quoted by any New Testament writer, and you can't even find a copy of the book of Esther in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It stands alone as the only Old Testament book that is excluded from those archaeological treasures. Martin Luther, and I'm a great fan of Luther, uh, we sang one of his songs a moment ago, but even Martin Luther said that the book of Esther shouldn't be included in Scripture. So other scholars have said the same thing. Is this book in the Bible by mistake? Well, the book of Esther seems to have a reputation that is a bit sullied. It's probably the most disputed book in the Bible. Is it perhaps just a bit of history that accidentally got into the Bible? I don't think so. In addition to be a literary gem, I think it's also a theological gem, and we will consider that this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father God, we thank you for all of your word, for gospels, for the letters, for the law and the prophets, and we thank you for the book that we consider today. Teach us from it, we pray. Show us through the book of Esther, the story of Esther, once again, how your word always points us to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. To properly consider the book of Esther, we need to consider the purpose of the book, and I think there are several. Uh, one purpose is history, to tell the story of an important historical event. Events of Esther's day are still celebrated in the Jewish feast of Purim. The history is important. But I believe there's a higher purpose to the book. I think that the book of Esther tells another story, the story of God's plan of redemption for his people, the story of how God redeems his people by grace through faith in a Redeemer. Since some people may be less than familiar with the story, we'll look at quite a bit of the text as we go along. But before we jump into Esther, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. This chapter is known as the Hall of Faith. And I like to think of it as sort of going through a museum and seeing pictures on the wall and engaging in their story by reading the captions. And the captions in Hebrews 11 all start out with the words, by faith. It's a list of Old Testament saints who live by faith, who trust God, who believe in God's promises, and who live out God's plan in their lives. But I particularly like what follows that list of saints. In verse 13, we read, All these died by faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This portion of the text talks of promises that Old Testament saints looked forward to. And even though they did not receive the full promise of God while on earth, they saw them from a distance. How did they see them? Through Old Testament scriptures that paint pictures of God's plan of redemption. 
pictures of a Savior that would die for his people, a Savior who redeems by offering his life for others, a Savior who will taste death in order to bring life. Hebrews 11 is a list of a people of faith, but the text tells us it's only a partial list. There are so many that the list is cut short. Today, we look at one that did not make the list. Although Esther did not make the list, hers is an important story. It is so important that it has a separate book in God's story of redemption. The Old Testament is full of story after story that tell of a coming Messiah, and it uses words to paint pictures, pictures of redemption. And that's what I believe that Esther is. It's a literary picture, a picture of a type of deliverer. It's a story that paints a small picture of God's big picture. And the first chapter of Esther sets the stage for the story. Israel is in exile and under the rule of pagan king Ahasuerus, or also known as, as Xerxes. Neither one of those are easy to pronounce. Uh, and I'll use both of them as we go through. But old Xerxes had a party. Yeah, actually it's a really big party. And during the celebration, he sends for his queen. He wants to show her off. But the queen doesn't want to be put on display, so she says, no. Now we all know that the answer no is not an acceptable response to give to an order from the king. The king's been insulted, and that cannot be tolerated. Why, first thing you know, all the women in the land will be disrespecting their husbands. Can't have that now, can we? So the queen falls from grace, and the search is on for a new queen. The new queen must be the fairest in the land. And pagan kings don't have to go courting the way lesser mortals do. Now he has a whole harem made ready, and then he takes each one for a test drive. If he happens to like one candidate well enough to remember her name, if he even asks her name, he might call for her again. If not, they stay in, stay in the harem for life. What a life. In the second chapter of Esther, we're introduced to a man named Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jewish exile living in Susa, the capital of Xerxes' kingdom. We also meet for the first time the namesake of the book. Esther is introduced as Mordecai's orphaned niece that Mordecai has taken into his home to raise. In time, Esther comes to the attention of those doing the queen hunt, and she moves to the palace to be prepared to meet the king. Let's take a moment and meet the star of our story. I'm reading from the second chapter of Esther, starting in the middle of verse 7. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to Susa the capital into the custody of Haggai that Esther was taken to the king palace into the custody of Haggai who was in charge of the women. So we learned that Esther was beautiful of form and face. To put that tidbit in modern perspective, she was a knockout that would turn any head in the room. In 500 B.C., even in some cases today, that could be the ticket to the good life. She's literally fit for a king. We also learn that she is chosen as one of, many of the, one of the many young women for the king. She's made a part of the king's harem. Likely, she had no say in the matter, so let's not think any less of her on account of her circumstance. Kings were kings in that day. Their rule was absolute. If the king wanted a harem full of lovely ladies, he simply gave the order. It would not matter much what the ladies thought of the situation. Nobody even, no one would even bother to ask their opinion. So Esther moves to the palace. 
But Uncle Mordecai still worries for his charge, and we find him hanging around the gate just to keep tabs on Esther. Just because she is no longer under his roof doesn't mean that Mordecai is slacking off in his duties as her guardian. While Mordecai hangs around the gate, Esther is getting the royal treatment. Today's modern woman couldn't hold a candle to these people. She spends 12 months being prepped for her visit with the king, a year of preparation for a one-night stand. Quite the long shot. After one night with the king, the candidate never went back unless the king calls for her by name. So how does Esther do on her one night with the king? The writer tells us at verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all of the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king falls head over heels in love with Esther. She finds favor in his eyes, and he makes her his queen. What a story. From exiled foreigner, also orphaned, to queen. Esther has become the Cinderella of Susa. Meanwhile, back at the gate, Mordecai is still sitting around keeping, keeping up with the palace gossip about his charge. While he's sitting at the gate, Mordecai overhears a plot to kill the king. It's often the case that the biggest threat to a monarch comes from those closest to the throne. And in this case, it's two of his officials that are doing the scheming. Well, Mordecai gets word to Esther and she warns the king, giving credit to Mordecai, and the plot is foiled. The conspirators are hanged and the reign of Xerxes is safe. As with all political events in the life of every nation, the events are recorded in the congressional record, I mean the chronicles of the kingdom. However, the king must have other things on his mind and the episode is quickly forgotten. So is Mordecai and his efforts on behalf of the king. You would think that he would have been wined and dined and honored, but it was not to be. They wrote it down and that was the end of it for a while. The next character of note in the book is Haman the Agagite. It's, he is likely of the line of Agag, who was the Amalekite king that was put to get death by King Saul. Haman is promoted to high office, so high that everyone bows to him and pays homage to him, almost as if he is king. Everyone gives honor to Haman, everyone that is except Mordecai. And the text says that he was filled with rage. When Haman discovers that Mordecai is a Jew, he extends his hatred to all the Jewish people. The reason for that hatred is not given, but one can but wonder if it's not because of the history of his family with the Jews. If you want to, you can look that up in 1 Samuel 15 and read this story. But whatever the reason for his hatred, when he finds himself in a position to bring destruction to the Jews, he sets out to do just that. Haman brings his campaign to destroy the Jews by making an accusation before the king. Reading in chapter 3 at verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Haman charges the Jews with the severe crime of being different. He charges them for being of a different culture, of a different ethnic origin, with different rules for living. I mean, how original was Adolf Hitler? Then without providing any evidence, at least so far as we know, he tells the king that these people flaunt the king's laws and it is in the national interest to get rid of them. He suggests to be, that they be slaughtered. Ethnic cleansing will be a good thing for the country. 
and the king gives the okay. Now you have to wonder about the king at this point. So far, we know little about his character, except that he loves a good party and he's got good taste in women. But with this move, we see that he has little concern for his subjects. He sentences a whole people group to annihilation with no more thought than you might have before swatting a fly. The Jews are in a tough spot. The entire Jewish population is under a death sentence. They need a deliverer, and they have no ability, no power with which to effect their own salvation. They stand condemned without hope. It is a picture of lost sinners, a picture of you and me when we were outside of Christ. Like the Jews in this story, we were under condemnation with no power to save ourselves and in need of a deliverer. Well, in our story, Haman rolls the dice, also known as the purr, and the date is picked for the slaughter. The order is printed in every language of the empire and it's sent out to every province. On the 13th day of the 12th months, some 11 months after the order is given, every Jew in the empire is to be killed. The law is clear. Every Jew, young and old, man and woman, all will be killed to satisfy the rage of Haman. Mordecai is horrified when he hears the news. He goes into mourning. He tears his clothing. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. And again, he goes to the king's gate, this time to mourn for his people. Mordecai is not alone in his mourning. Scripture tell us, tells us that there was weeping and wailing wherever the orders went. Even though the Jews were still alive, Mordecai is in mourning as though they were already dead. He knows that the law of the land is that an edict of the king cannot be rescinded. Even were the king to have a change of heart, Medo-Persian law says that an edict from the king cannot be changed. Mordecai sees little hope for his people. Esther hears of, dis of his distress and sends a messenger to find out the reason. Evidently, in the sanctity of the palace, the queen knows nothing of the impending doom of her people. Not only that, but the writer told us earlier that the king did not know that Esther was Jewish. The sentence the king has passed applies even to his queen. At this point in our story, Mordecai takes on the role of a priest. He begins to intercede for his people. In spite of the permanence of the king's edict, Mordecai asks Esther to go to the king and plead the case on behalf of the Jewish people. That's no small request. For anyone to go into the king's court without being summoned is to risk their very life. The penalty for going before the king without invitation is death. The only chance for reprieve would be that the, cha that the chance that the king might be in such a good mood that he decides to spare the life of the supplicant. But there's no assurance of that, and Esther is rightly concerned. Esther now knows of Haman's plot and Mordecai's plea. She is called upon to risk her own life, to go before the king and to plead a near hopeless case. She is called on to fulfill the role of an intercessor, to implore the king's favor, to plead for her people. A great story is unfolding. As Christians, we're called to pray prayers of intercession for each other, to go before the throne of grace on behalf of others. Here we see Esther called to do the same, to go before the throne of the king, interceding for her people, much like scripture tells us that Christ intercedes for us before the Father. Mordecai intercedes with Esther, Esther is asked to intercede with the king, even at the risk of her life. Reading Esther's response in chapter 4, verse 11. All the king's servants, 
and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. Notice that Esther's been away from the king's presence for some time, 30 days. It seems that the king is aloof, almost unreachable. Jewish people would have understood that. God himself was approachable in the Holy of Holies only at certain times and only by certain people. For an earthly king to be unreachable does not seem out of place. Now, some scholars will use the fact that Esther's been absent for 30 days from the king's presence. They would use that as evidence that she had fallen from favor. I disagree, and we'll come back to that point in a bit. But Esther is reluctant, and no wonder. Her life to this point has not been her own. Even though she is queen, her position is not one of her own choosing. And recent history tells her that the queen can be replaced on a whim. Esther is being asked to step out of character, to go before the most powerful man in the world, and suggest by the very nature of her request that the king should change his mind and overturn his own ruling. She'd be telling this man that his former decision was wrong. Not only that, but she's going to be revealing to the king that his own queen is among a people group that he has ruled are undesirable and should be exterminated. No wonder she's reluctant. Esther's reluctance brings another call from Mordecai. He gets even more insistent, reading on in chapter 4 at verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. I love this part. A bit the diplomat, a bit the priest, with a touch of prophet thrown in, Mordecai again calls Esther to her role. And he reminds her that the law applies to her as well. Strong in his own faith, Mordecai trusts that even if Esther fails the people, God will not fail. He trusts that deliverance will come. Taking on a bit of the mantle of a prophet, in the second half of verse 14, Mordecai suggests that this is Esther's purpose in life. We read, And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? What's that tell us about Mordecai's theology? Well, it suggests to me that, first of all, he understands that God is sovereign. He understands that God has plans for his people. And it looks as though Mordecai understands and believes the doctrine of predestination. He might even be a bit of a Calvinist. But whatever his theology, his entreaty to Esther is powerful. And reading further, we see Esther's reply in verse 16. Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. I think that perhaps this verse is the key to the book of Esther. In spite of her reluctance, in spite of her fear, Esther takes on the role of intercessor. Yes, a reluctant intercessor to be sure, but even Jesus prayed for the cup to pass. Then Esther calls for the people to do three days of fasting for her. She also fasts as she accepts her fate. She accepts the possibility of dying for her people. Even as Christ, when he prayed for the cup to pass, also prayed, thy will be done. 
So Esther determines to do for her people that which they do not have the ability to do for themselves. She decides that she will intercede for her people and that she will die for her people if she must. Let's look at the result. Reading at verse 1, chapter 5. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's room. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And it happened when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in her hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it will be given you. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. She puts her life on the line, and she goes unbidden before the king. Fearing wrath, facing judgment, Esther instead finds grace or favor in the king's sight. And the king accepts, extends the scepter and grants life to Esther. I see a beautiful symbolism here. Esther has offered her life, willing to take the risk of dying for her people. And although she doesn't die, she's under a sort of death sentence for three days. In our prisons, a man under the death sentence with his date of execution scheduled is called a dead man walking. Alive for the moment, but under the imminent sentence of death. Well, for those three days of fasting, Esther is literally a dead woman walking. From the time that she decides that she will go before the king, her life is forfeit. She is as if dead. And it's a picture of Jesus' death. In this story, the Jews are taught that if you're going to be a savior for your people, your life is the price. Jesus spent three days in the grave. Esther spends three days under the shadow of death. On the third day, Jesus arose from the dead. With Esther, after three days, the scepter is extended and she is granted life. She comes back from the death sentence that she has been under. But it's only a picture. Although Esther is willing to die, the king does not take her life. And that's something that we need to remember. No picture ever matches the real thing. Esther's picture of dying for her people is only a shadowy portrait of the real thing. So the scepter is extended. The king shows grace and mercy. He shows his love for Esther and offers her anything she wants up to half the kingdom. That's why I don't think that Esther was out of favor. Pagan kings do not extend the scepter and offer half of their kingdom to a queen who is out of favor. Read again the first chapter of Esther to see what happens to a queen who is out of favor. If Esther had fallen from favor, Xerxes would have just gotten a new queen. When the king bids Esther to make her request, she doesn't do it. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet that day. At the banquet, in a good mood, with a full stomach, and a glass of wine at hand, the king again asks Esther to make her request. And again, she doesn't do it. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to another banquet the next day and tells him she will make her request then. Now, I'm not sure what's going on here. Is Esther, is Esther struggling, working up her courage? Is she trying to soften up the king? Well, we don't know for certain because the text doesn't tell us. But in the time that passes, we see interesting events unfold. Before the second banquet, something else takes place. We see Haman swell with pride as he leaves the palace. I mean, who wouldn't? He's the king's favorite, and now he believes he's found favor with the queen. This man has it all. Yet when he sees Mordecai, his rage consumes him. 
His thirst for power is such that the perceived lack of respect from one Jew means more than anything else. Arriving at home, he seeks the counsel of his friends and his wife, and he reminds them of his accomplishments, of his high position, of his power, his prestige. Then he confesses his hatred of Mordecai overshadows everything else. He states that all he does, all he has does not satisfy him when one single Jew won't bow down to him. Not to fear, his wife and friends have a plan to satisfy, satisfy even Haman's ego. They suggest the execution of Mordecai, and not just killing, but make a spectacle of it. Build a gallows 75 feet tall so that everyone can have an unobstructed view of the humil humiliation of Mordecai. But what a difference a day makes. The sixth chapter of Esther brings a twist to the plot of our story. The king is having a bad night. He can't get to sleep, so he asks for a bedtime story. Now, what kind of bedtime story would, it, would interest a king? Well, typical of men with big egos, the king's favorite stories are about himself. As the history of the king's rule is being read, the reader comes to, to the story of how Mordecai foiled the assassination plot and saved the life of the king. The king realizes, had it not been for this man, he'd be dead now. What a timely reading. The king says, what honor was given to Mordecai? And the answer given to the king is that nothing was done. King realizes he needs to right this wrong, and why not? Should not everyone who acts to protect the king be assured of reward from the king? Not only is it the right thing to do, it is self-preservation. So the king calls for an advisor, and he's told that Haman is just outside the door. Now, Haman has come to ask the king about hanging Mordecai, little knowing that the king has just decided to honor this same man. Now, before Haman can make his request to the king, the king asks Haman a question. He asks Haman's advice on how to honor someone. He doesn't mention a name. In his vanity and his pride, Haman assumes that the king wants to honor Haman. So he suggests a grand exhibition of honor. Put the honoree on a horse that the king has ridden. Dress him in a robe that the king has worn and parade him through the city in triumph. Then in a twist of fate that would do any great novelist proud, the king orders Haman to honor Mordecai, just as Haman had said. Talk about ruining your day. Haman was plotting to kill this guy who won't grovel at his feet. And just before he can make the request to the king, the king honors, orders Haman to honor Mordecai in the manner that Haman had coveted for himself. Haman is so distraught, he goes into mourning. He runs home in shame. Haman's wife now becomes a small tribe prophet and predicts Haman's downfall. But Haman can't even take time to consider his, her warning because he is due at the palace for Esther's second banquet. At the second banquet, Esther finally gets up her nerve to put her petition before the king. She asks for her life and the lives of her people telling the king that they've been slated for annihilation. And she pulls a great diplomatic coup. She tells the king that had they merely been sold into slavery, that such a trivial thing would have not been worth the king's annoyance. It's interesting to note that Esther groups herself with her people. She doesn't presume that her status with, as queen will make a difference. It makes her plea personal and direct. She's not pleading for those people. She's pleading for her people, my people. The king asked Esther, who would do such a thing? Who would threaten death to the queen and her people? Remember, Haman only said a certain people. 
He hadn't mentioned the Jews directly, and seemingly the king didn't care enough to inquire. He left it in Haman's hand to do as Haman thought best. King also didn't know until this point that Esther was a Jew. So the king does not connect the two matters. When the king asks who the villain is, Esther replies in chapter 7, verse 6, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Haman's exposed. And what follows is one of the best cases of poetic justice found in the Bible. It's also a beautiful picture of substitutionary atonement. The king is told about the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, and the king has Haman hanged on it. Chapter 7, starting at verse 9, tells the story. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. Haman receives the fate that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king gives to Mordecai the office that had been held by Haman, making Mordecai the highest ranking officer in the king's court. Chapter 8, verse 2 tells us, The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. The ring gives to Mordecai, that was given to Mordecai enables him to seal documents with the king's name. He has the authority to act on behalf of the king. High and mighty Haman has been hanged on the very gallows he built for Mordecai, while Mordecai moves from the obscurity of the gate to the grandeur of the palace, where he serves as the king's right hand. It reminds me of something that Jesus said in Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Haman and Mordecai have traded places. Haman pays the penalty intended for Mordecai, and Mordecai gains the status that belonged to Haman. Do you see the picture? It is a picture of justification. Haman pays Mordecai's penalty, and Mordecai receives Haman's office, just as Christ pays our penalty while we receive his righteousness. As expected, all pictures fall short of the reality they portray. Mordecai's deserving of death is not in evidence. You and I deserving eternal condemnation is very much in evidence. Mordecai had saved the king's life, so the promotion of Mordecai is based on somewhat on merit. But with Christ, it's different. Positions are exchanged just as in this story, but when we trust in Christ, we receive position for which we have no merit. Again, with any picture, this picture falls short. But the picture is painted by the master, and the theme is there for everyone to see. But our story is still unfinished. The edict still stands that all the Jews are to be killed, and according to the law of the land, that edict can't be changed. So to counter the planned extermination, Mordecai issues in the king's name orders which allow the Jews to band together in their own defense. So instead of the Jews being destroyed, their enemies will be destroyed. Again, another picture of substitution. The Jews were slated for destruction based on who they are. They were considered enemies of the king. Now, however, through nothing they have done, but because of the intercession on their behalf by another, they come under the protection of the king. The delivery from that sentence of death is celebrated even today in the Jewish feast of Purim. In summary, the book of Esther is a multifaceted picture of salvation by faith alone. Mordecai receives Haman's position. It's a picture of justice. Haman receives Mordecai's sentence, also a picture of justice. But with Christ, it's just the opposite. 
we should be punished for our sins just like Haman was. And if God was just about justice, we would be. Christ should never bear punishment. That would also be just. And if God were only fair and just to us, that's what would happen. But instead, Christ offers himself as an intercessor for our sins. And we receive mercy, not justice. Just as Esther has offered herself as an intercessor for the Jews. The king's grace falls on the Jews. It's a grace that they could not obtain for themselves. Just as God's grace falls on us. And again, a grace we could not obtain for ourselves. The king's wrath falls on Haman, just as God's wrath will fall on all those who stand on their own righteousness. Mordecai, it's a picture of a priest as he petitions Esther on behalf of the Jews. Just as Moses petitions God on behalf of the entire nation several centuries earlier. Great pictures indeed. But the master artist, greatest picture in the book of Esther is the book's namesake. Esther is a picture or type of Christ. She intercedes for her people as Christ intercedes for the church. And as a result of the intercession by Esther, the Jews find salvation by grace of the king. The scepter was extended and grace rules the day. Only the king's grace could save the people, grace alone. We also see faith working. The Jews in the story found salvation by faith alone. We see this in Mordecai's faith that God would deliver. We see it in Esther's courage and willingness to die for her people. Only through faith are the people saved, faith alone. Jews in the story also find their salvation in a person. Esther is put in a situation where only she has the position to effect deliverance for her people. As a type of Christ or one who is anointed, she is the one to whom the task falls. She is anointed to the role of intercessor. And the Jews are saved only through the work of this anointed one, this type of Christ. Again, Christ alone. The story of Esther is a picture of God's perfect plan for his people. It's a snapshot of the gospel. It shows the type of Savior that would come, and it shows that God will always provide salvation for his people. All through the Old Testament, we see picture after picture of God's plan of redemption. These are pictures of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have the story of Abel, of Abraham, of Ruth, and so many others, and not the least is the story of Esther. The whole of Old Testament history is the same. Picture after picture of God teaching his people that salvation is by the mercy of God and that salvation comes through trusting God to effect that salvation, which will be effected through one that will be anointed to the task. That's the story of Esther. So I ask you again, if the Bible is the word of God, why is there a book in the Bible that never mentions God? Well, his word may not be on the page, but his hand is seen all through it. This is a story of God saving his people, a story of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the same for the Jews in the days of Esther as it is for us today. We need to trust in the one who can deliver us when we have no merit, no power. We need to trust Jesus, our Savior, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this book and the picture it paints for us. Keep us ever thirsty for your word. Reveal yourself to us today and every day through your word. Bless each one here today with a richer knowledge of your revealed word, the scriptures, and a richer walk with your incarnate word, 
Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.